Amen. Well, it was a tremendous privilege and an honor to be sharing the word of the Lord with you this morning. And I have a message that has been on my heart, not just the past week, not just the past month, not even several months ago when we kind of tentatively placed this date on the calendar for this moment. But this has been something that's been on my heart ever since I felt the call that God has placed on my heart for full-time ministry. And so today, it's a privilege to be able to share a little bit of, the heart, of what God has placed on my heart. And so if you have your, your Bible today, would you turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 13. And before we begin, I just want to share from the Word a, a challenge that we all have on our lives. A timeless challenge. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting verse 13, it says this. It says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's read that again. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Guard. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for everyone that is here, that we can come together in your presence, Lord. And we just ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Open our ears and our hearts today, God. Have your way in this place. God, I ask that you would use me, for without you, I am nothing. Be sure to give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for you, Lord, are worthy in Jesus' matchless name. And everyone said, Amen. And amen and amen. When I was a student, and I shared this story before, so if you've heard it, it's okay. It's still good. But when I was a student in high school, one of the things that I liked to do was I liked to run track. I was a big track athlete. I loved to run. I don't know. I actually didn't enjoy the running part. I think I just enjoyed the camaraderie of being on a track team. So I always tried to get out of running around the track as much as possible during practice. But there was a race that I was a part of. It's called the 4 by 400 meter relay. And what that is, you have four people on your team, and each individual will run one lap around the track, and then there's a baton that you hand off, and then the next person will run a lap, and so on and so forth. And then the team that has all four runners who have completed their lap first is the winner. And there was one year where my relay team, we were one of the favorites, and so we were, we were predicted to do well because we were going to go to the next level to compete. And so... How many know that sometimes when those moments happen, things can get to your head a little bit? And so we had, our team had this attitude about ourselves, like, we're going to win. You know, you guys are all running for second and third place, you know. Good luck, good luck for those who finish in second. You know, you're going to be eating our dust. You're going to be seeing the back of our, our backside, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we were, we were so, like, confident that we had already, that we had already won the race. We hadn't even run the race yet, but we had already won the race. And so it was our time to get up in the, in the, in the track. And, and my job was the leadoff runner that day. And my job was to start well and to make sure that when I handed the baton to my teammate, there was nobody in front of me. That was my mentality, was that when I hand this baton off to the next person, no one 
better be in front of me. That was my most, that was my mission. That was my job. And so that was the attitude that I went. So I got down my, I got down to my, in my blocks and I got down and, and we, you know, we stretched out and we got ready and we're focused. And I'm just saying, you got this, you got this, you got this. I talk to myself sometimes. If you're ever here during the week, you're going to hear me talking or whistling. That's me. It's okay. I'm all right. Um, so I was talking to myself, probably scared some people, pumped myself up. And the official said, runners, take your mark. So I got in my blocks and I Got ready. He said, set. I got up in the air. And then the gun went off. And as soon as the gun went off, I was out. Can I tell you, I don't think I've ever had a better start to a race. I don't think I ever started out as good as I did that day. And I remember I hit that turn and that first turn was coming up and I felt so good. I said, you got this, you got this, you got this. And I'm running and I'm running. I come down to the first straightaway, the first, I come up to the halfway mark and I kind of did something that you're not supposed to do about 200 meters into my 400-meter race, and there's something that they always tell you in a race not to do, and that is to look behind. I looked behind. I saw that everyone was so far behind, and all I thought was, man, you got this. You got this. They, they are so far behind you, they're never going to catch up. You're going to give your team the best lead ever. So I hit, this, I hit the last curve, I hit the last turn, and I am just pushing through. I don't even know where this energy came from, but I felt so good because I knew that I was doing my job. I knew that I was getting ready to hand the baton off to my teammate and that he was going to have the biggest lead. He could trip and fall, get back up and restart, and he would still be in first place. That's how far ahead I was. Maybe not, but that's how I felt that time. And I came to that last straightaway, and I was ready. I was like, okay, where's my teammate? He needs to be right there. Came down to the last 80 meters, 70 meters, 60 meters, 50, 40. I'm starting to look for my teammate. He should be right there, and I'm not seeing him. I'm like, all right, he needs, to, he needs to show up. It's 30 meters away, 20 meters. Where's my teammate at? Where's he at? See, there's something critical in, in, in a track race, and that's the exchange. And I was looking for my teammate in that moment, and he wasn't there. And I got... 20 meters, 10 meters. And all of a sudden, I had to come to a complete stop. And can I tell you something, church? Let me just give you a little recommendation. If you're in a race and you have to come to a complete stop, that's usually not a good thing. And so I'm at a complete stop. I have the baton in my hand, and I'm looking around like this. And I'm like, where is my teammate? Where is he at? I got the baton. I ran my leg. I need to hand it off. And all the while, as I'm standing still, everyone else who I was beating was catching up. And they started. And all of a sudden, I went from first, and then I was in second, and then third, and fourth. And finally, everyone had passed me, and it was just me. And in that moment, I looked to the right, and behind the fence, outside the track, were my teammates and my coach. And they were laughing. And I looked up in the stands and I saw all the people from my school, all, all the guys on my track team, they were laughing hysterically and I'm looking around and, I'm, and I realized in that moment that I had run in the wrong race. <laughs> I run in the wrong race and I'm standing there like this going, what do I do? It was one of the most humiliating, humbling moments in my life. It was horrendous. Can I tell you something though? And this is not part of the message, but just a little truth, that I still had to run my race. And so when it came time to actually run the race I was supposed to run into, um, I didn't have enough energy. And we didn't win. And we didn't advance. And we ended up not accomplishing 
what we should have accomplished. Can I tell you, church, that we're all running a race? We are running a race. We are all in a race in our lives. But it's not an individual race. I think at times we're so focused on me, myself, and I, and we think that our race is an individual race or it's an individual sprint. But can I tell you, church, that we are in a spiritual relay that's not a sprint. We are in a spiritual relay. I love relays. When I think of a relay race, I think of the Olympics. I'm excited for Olympics. Anyone else love the Olympics? Anyone else excited for the Olympics? I love the Olympics. Four years ago, right at the end of the uh, 2012 Olympics in London, I told our students, and, and some of them were there for this, they heard it, that I had a plan to be an Olympian in 2016. And I had developed this plan. I came up with a four-year strategy, and that in 2016, for the Rio de Janeiro Olympics, I was going to be representing my country. How many know your direction, not your intention, determines your destination? While I might have had every intention to be an Olympian, it may be a surprise to you that I will not be representing our country in the Olympics this year in Rio. But I love the Olympics, and again, having a track background, I love the relay races, and, and I'm reminded of the U.S. Women's Olympic Team, the U.S. Women's Olympic Team, the 4 by 100 meter relay race. In, 2000, in year 2000, the Sydney Olympics, they were projected to be the best team. They were projected to be the number one team. They had the fastest times all year round. They were, on paper, the fastest team in the world. How many of you know that if you're projected to be number one, if you don't finish first, it's a disappointment and it's a loss? If you're projected to be number one and you get second place in the silver medal, what's the point? And so we had the 4 by 100 meter relay race, the women's team. They were the best, the fastest. And yet they didn't win. They finished third place. A disappointing third place. Can I tell you though, they didn't finish third because they weren't fast enough. They didn't finish third because they didn't train hard enough or they weren't prepared mentally or they weren't prepared physically. Can I tell you there was one reason why they didn't finish first and they finished third instead. And that is because they botched the exchange of the baton. On the third, on the third exchange, there was a mishandle of the baton and they had the, the runner had to slow down. And in that time, in the exchange, in such a critical moment, the race went from them finishing in first to third. The exchange cost them the gold medal. In 2004 in Athens... Again, they were the fastest. Again, they were projected to be number one. Again, they should have had the gold medal. But again, something happened, not because of how fast they were, not because they weren't trained enough, but because something in the exchange went wrong. See, in the track race, there is an exchange zone that you are allowed to exchange the baton. And if you exchange too early or too late, you are disqualified. And can I tell you that in that race, the women's team, the U.S. Women's Olympic 4 by 100 meter relay team, the one runner was a little tired. And as she was finishing her leg, the runner ahead of her went off a little too soon, and she wasn't able to catch up with her. And so the passing of the baton, the exchange, happened outside of the exchange zone, and because of that, the team was disqualified. And then we go to four years later in Beijing, once again, we find they're the fastest, they're the favorite, but they didn't finish. 
Because what happened was, was in the exchange, once again, this time, they dropped the baton. It wasn't until 2012 in London when they finally got their exchange down perfect and they were able to win the gold medal and they were able to set a world record as well. Can I tell you something? There's something significant about the exchange zone. There is something significant about the exchange zone from one generation to the next. And we are in the midst of a spiritual exchange zone as we're going from one generation to the next generation. And church, can I tell you, we can't afford to mess this up. We can't afford to drop the baton. We can't afford to pass it too late. We can't afford to miss it. We can't afford to mishandle it because there's an entire generation on the line. We are in the midst of a spiritual exchange. We have one generation, and we'll just call them the older generation, the younger generation. I'm sure there's multiple within that. But we have an older generation. They've been running the race. You've been running your race now. You're in the midst of it. But can I tell you that there's coming a point, it's coming up soon, where you're going to have to pass the baton to the next generation. And we have a younger generation that is eager and, and ready, but you have to be ready to accept the baton as it comes to you. We are in the midst of a spiritual exchange. We can't afford to mess it up. We can't afford for it to be late. We can't afford to drop it. In Genesis chapter 27, we find the story of what happens when one generation loses out, misses out on what was supposed to be theirs, misses out on the exchange in Genesis chapter 27, verse 32. It says this, it says, his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, oh my father. Church, we see right here, Esau the firstborn, the eldest, the one who should have had his birthright, the one who should have received the blessing, missed out on what was supposed to be his. He did not receive the blessing that should have been passed down upon him. He did not receive the birthright that should have been handed to him. And if we look further, we can tell from Obadiah that Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, they're not promised a life of hope, but rather destruction and ruin. Because they missed out on the blessing that should have been passed to them. They missed out on what should have been handed from one generation to the next. His cry, bless me, even me also, oh my father. Church, we have a generation that's crying out, bless me. We have a generation saying, bless me. And church, it is our responsibility to take the baton that's in our hands that we have been entrusted with and we need to take it and hand it off to the next generation. So we come to 2 Timothy 2. It says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit and trust you. Church, this is a timeless challenge that we have. 
This is Paul writing to Timothy, and this is Paul saying, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit dwells with us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We have one generation, a Paul generation. And he's saying here, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Guard the good deposit and trust you. And we have a Timothy generation that is here receiving this. Can we, can, we can gather a few things from here though. It says follow. Another word, another, some other translations say hold fast. It says hold fast. And when it says hold fast there, what I think it really means is that it means that there's going to be things that are going to try to take away the biblical truth that you have received. There's going to be things that are going to come up in your life that are going to try to lead you astray. Church, we need to hold fast. We need to hold fast. We can't let go. We can't steer away. We can't try to deviate from what we know is true. Look at the world around us. Look at what it looks like on the outside. Look at what is happening in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our homes. Church, we have a world that is speaking very loudly, trying to steer away a generation. But church, we need to encourage this generation to hold fast. Hold your ground. Follow the pattern of the sound words. says sound words there. Sound words. Hold fast to the biblical truth. That I've given you. Hold fast to the word of the Lord. It doesn't say hold fast to some catchy words. It doesn't say hold fast to some super funny jokes. It doesn't say hold fast to self-help tips. It doesn't say hold fast to the top ten ways to get better in life. It doesn't say hold fast to five easy ways to accomplish this or accomplish that. It doesn't say that we are to hold fast on the words of men. But it says to hold fast onto sound words being the word of the Lord. The grass with the flowers fade, but the word of our God is enduring to the end. Church, we need a generation that is going to hold fast to the word of God. And they need to do that when that sound word has been heard. How can they hold fast if they don't hear? How can they hold fast if someone doesn't go? If someone doesn't go, then how can someone share? And if they don't share, how can someone hear? I love what it says. He says, hold fast the sound words that you have heard from me. Paul spoke these words to Timothy. And I have to imagine that Paul was in a place where he could speak into Timothy's life. Paul was in a place where Timothy could hear his words. Church, i got to ask you something. Generation, this older generation, are you in a place to where you can speak into this younger generation? Because a younger generation, they need to hear and hold fast to the sound words, but they can't hold on to it if someone hasn't shared it with them. And church, if we're not sharing it with them, how can they hear it and hold on to it? Church, we need to share the sound words to this generation. I think a lot of us, though, we, we have a, a mentality, oh, it's just me and my Bible. You know? You know just, you know, God speaks to me and myself and I all alone, and, and, and that's it. You know, we don't, you know, I can just 
do life by myself in Jesus. Can I tell you, though? God uses other people. That we are called to move together. I love what it says in Peter when we, he describes us as living stones being built around the chief cornerstone, Jesus himself. Church, what that tells me is that a little rock by itself is insignificant. But when you take them and you build them around Christ Jesus, it becomes something significant. And that's his church. We can't isolate ourselves. We can't remove ourselves. We can't put ourselves away in a secret place and not expect to have any contact with anyone else. Church, we need to be involved in people's lives. God used Paul to speak to Timothy. I believe that God wants to use individuals in this room to speak into a generation that is waiting to receive the baton. He was in a place to speak into his life. It says guard and entrust it. See, it's not enough just to hold it, but we need to guard it. We need to guard God's word in our heart. Church, I think we have a very dangerous thing happening within our walls, within the church, within our, within our communities. And that is faithfulness is only expected as long as it serves our own interests. The moment it is no longer convenient, the no longer it never it doesn't it stops meeting our interests, it stops meeting our needs, we abandon it. The moment church is no longer comfortable. Pastor on Wednesday night was just sharing for a moment in his Bible study about how we have made our faith comfortable. Church, what a great danger that is when we make our faith comfortable for me, myself, and I. Church, we can't be living in this way where it's only if it's convenient for me am I all in. But the moment something asks me to serve or the moment that I get stretched or the moment I feel a little bit of pressure or the moment there's a little stress, I'm out. Take it. You take care of it. I'm going to take care of myself now. Church, can I tell you, at times it's going to hurt. At times it's not going to always be easy. Can't be about convenience. Can we just stop for a moment and remember that it's not about us? It's not about us. I'm tired of, of the church being about ourselves. It's about other people. It's about a lost and dying world that is beyond these walls that's within our homes and our schools and our communities and our families and this state and this nation and this world who do not have a hope yet, who have not come to see and know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And church, can I tell you, it's not about us, but it's about other people. I love what Psalm 15:4. when David writes this, he's, he's right. He's saying, who can abide or, or what kind of person can be found in the presence of the Lord? And he writes this. He says, this type of person is one who honors those who fear the Lord. And I love what he says there in Psalm 15, 4. It says, one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Church, what if we became a church that is faithful even through the pain? It's going to cost you something. It's not always going to be easy. I remember I was in Israel and I was blessed with the opportunity to go serve, um, to go study there when I was in school and college. And one of the things that we got to do was experience the local markets. And if you've ever been to any, any sort of air environment that has a local market, bizarre type of environment, one of the, um, just, 
everyone kind of understands this is that you don't pay the first price, but you do something called bartering. And if you've been to those markets, you've never bartered, you're doing it wrong, all right? But there's something called bartering. And so we were in these markets and, and we're talking and we're learning the art of bartering and I'm just not very good at it. You know, I'm like, okay, I'll buy it. And just a word of advice, if they bring you orange juice or tea, don't drink it because the moment you drink it, you're a sucker and they've got you and you're going to spend so much more money. But in that moment, we were in the markets and we were bartering and, and we wanted to get some sunglasses because... Um, we just felt like it'd be cool for all the guys to kind of have some matching sunglasses. And so we found these sunglasses, and, and they, they were Oakley sunglasses. And if you know anything about sunglasses, you know that Oakley's a, a pretty big name, and they're kind of expensive. What a deal we got. We got 10 pairs of Oakleys for 10 bucks. 10 bucks for, t- 10, bucks for, a pair, for uh, 10 pairs of Oakleys. That's $1 a pair of sunglasses. If you were to try to do that in the States, you would pay way more than that. A hundred times more than what we paid there. By the end of the trip, our Oakleys that we spent one dollar on each, I think half of them were broken. I think three of them were missing lenses. I think, I think someone just kind of, like, were just, they were just throwing them at each other because it was just fun. What's interesting is, is that These Oakleys, they didn't cost much. So at the end of the day, they weren't worth much. Church, I'm going to pose a tough question for you. How much does your faith cost you? Because if your faith doesn't cost you much, if it doesn't cost you anything, how much is your faith really worth? It's going to cost you. And I'm not just saying that because that's what I want to say, but that's what Jesus himself said. He says, anyone who wants to follow me, deny yourself, consider the cost, pick up your cross and follow me. You got to count the cost because it's going to cost you something, church. Church, when we decide to follow Jesus, we're not in it for our convenience. We're not in it for our comfortability. We're not in it for what I can get out of it. But it's rather so I can take hold of the light of the world, that I can take hold of the hope of the world, that I can be used by him to be a light in the darkness, to be sought to the earth, to stand tall like a city upon a hilltop, and to make him known. But it's going to cost something. Your faith doesn't cost you anything. I wonder how much your faith is really worth. I think far too often the things that keep us from where we are and where God wants to take us is the pain that we are unwilling to go through. God wants to take us somewhere, but sometimes he's saying, are you willing to go through the pain? Are you willing to go through it? It's going to cost. It's going to hurt. We need to guard and be faithful through it all. And God is faithful with what we commit to him. Will we be faithful what he has committed to us? So here we are. We're in the midst of a spiritual exchange zone church. We are in the midst of this spiritual exchange. And we have one generation that is carrying the baton. And they are running. And they are coming near to the end of their race. And we have a younger generation that is ready to receive the baton. That is ready to start their race. That is ready to go and begin what they have been called to do. 
And there's an exchange zone, church. There is a spiritual exchange zone where this exchange has to happen. If it happens too early or if it happens too late, we have messed it up. There's two things here that I want to highlight is that the generation that has the baton, you have to be willing to let go. You have to be willing to hand the baton off. If you put that baton in their hand, you have to let go and trust that they've got it. And to the younger generation, you got to be willing to start running for a little while without the baton and know that that baton will be there in the right time. Can I say that again? Church, we have a generation that needs to hand the baton and let go, and we have a generation that needs to start running the race and trust that the baton will be there when they need it and be willing to run for a season without the baton. We have an older generation, and they have concerns. They have concerns about what they see we, they see a generation, and I'm going to speak to you, to my younger generation for just a moment here. If you're a younger generation, there's concerns from the older generation, and they see that so many of your peers, maybe some of you here, your decisions are based on your circumstances, not on your convictions. You make decisions based upon what's going on in your surroundings, but not upon what you know to be true and what God has instilled in your heart. There's an older generation that has concerns because you're, you're following the convenient for me. You're following, it's all about me, myself, and I. There's a concern from the older generation students because instead of guarding the trust, many of you are trading the trust away or walking away from it all together. There are studies that have been done, and there are some studies that say that this generation may be the most biblically illiterate generation that has ever walked the face of this earth. With all of the technology that we have, with the fact that I can pull the Word of God on my phone, I have all the access to all the resources and the commentaries and the study and the word searches and sermons throughout all of history, and yet in a day and age where the Scriptures, the Word of God, is most easily accessible in our world that we live in right here, we have a generation that might be the most biblically illiterate. There's something wrong with that church. See, I know, students, that you can tell me how it feels, but can you tell me where it's found? There are valid concerns. But to this older generation, you need to communicate. You need to let this generation know that you are for them. Not because you like them, because there are, they're, they're the ones who are next. There's no one after them. They're the generation that we have. And so church, we, if we ignore them and say oh, all those things, you know, that's just, then if we don't pass the baton, then what's the point? We need to trust them. We need to get in their lives. We need to be a part of what God is doing in them. And we can't Hold back the blessing. We cannot hold back the baton. We have to trust them. We have to give them the baton. Now, I'm not saying that we don't hold them accountable. I'm not saying that we don't hold them accountable. I'm not saying that we let them live with beyond the confines of what Scripture teaches us. 
But what I am saying is don't be conditional with your blessing. Just give it to them. Too many times we say, I'll bless you if. I'll give it to you if you meet this need. Can I tell you, church, that Jesus never said, I will give you salvation if you do this. He just said, accept me as Lord and Savior. Die to yourself. We need to stop putting conditions on the blessing that God has charged with us to hand off. Church, there's hope, though. Because we have a younger generation that is full of passion, that is full of zeal. There is a spiritual hunger within this generation that is rising up. And if we can just show them the Savior and watch what He does in their life, I believe this world will never be the same. We don't deny your spiritual hunger, generation. We question your substance. Younger generation, you need to be willing to run a little while without the baton. Be willing to run your race. Esther 4 tells the story of Esther. It says, And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come, not come, to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether you have come for such a time as this. So we have Esther, and, and many of you are familiar with the story of Esther. I'm going to briefly catch us all up on where we're at. But in Esther 1, we have King Ahasuerus. That's a fun name to pronounce. And we have his queen, Queen Vashti. And he, the king would have all these parties, and the, and the queen wasn't really in favor of them. And so one day the king summoned her and said, I want you to come to this party. But she refused. And in refusing to do so, the king went to his council and his, those that were around him, and they determined that she insulted not only the king, but she insulted all the officials, and she insulted the entire nation that the king oversaw. And so the only thing to do was to have her banished from the kingdom. And so we have Esther. She's an orphan. She's cared for by her cousin Mordecai, and she is a Jewish girl, and she's beautiful. And so the king decides that he needs to replace his queen, so he begins to hold a beauty pageant to see who is the most beautiful in the land. And so Esther is summoned, and she is brought to the palace, and in that time, as she is being prepped and groomed to be presented to the king as one of the candidates to be the next queen. It says that Mordecai every day walked in front of the court to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And so Esther wins the eyes of the king and she is made queen over the entire nation. During this time, there was a man named Haman. And Haman was a little conniving man. He was all about him himself and not him himself. And as he is presented to the people, he notices that everyone bows down to him except for one person. That's Mordecai. So Haman does some sneaking and planning. He finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And he decides to have his people, all the people, not just Mordecai, but Mordecai's entire people killed. Mordecai finds out about this. And he passes word to Esther. 
Now remember that Esther's a Jewish girl, but the king doesn't know this because she kept this from him. She kept this from the king, and so he doesn't know. And Mordecai tells her that he, she has to do something. But Esther responds to Mordecai and says, I'm afraid if I go to the king without being summoned, I can be killed. I can be executed right there on the spot. And then we come to Esther 4. And Mordecai writes to her and says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther takes those words and she realizes that this, this is her time. That she has been called for such a time as this. And there's a good ending in the story as we know that Esther finally goes before the king. She reveals the plot and says that this man is threatening to kill my people, myself included. And Haman is hung by the very gallows he had built to hang Mordecai. Church, we have a generation that has been called for such a time as this. We have a generation that has been called for a day right now, for they have been called for such a time as this. I'm going to ask if, if Brian would come and just begin to play. I don't know if you noticed some of the shirts that our students were wearing, but it says, this is our time. This is the heart and the mission and the vision for our student ministry for this coming year. This is our time. Now let me just give some clarification here. It's not this is our time to be the best. It's not this is our time to be number one. It's not this is our time to showcase who we are. This isn't this is our time to be recognized by all these people. But rather, this is our time to make Jesus known. This is our time to be a light in the dark place. This is our time to be salt to the earth. This is our time to stand up. This is our time to love a hurt and lost world. This is our time to go out. I love what pastor said because he said, you know, in Panama that they can just go to the schools. And I know here we can't, but you know who can? You know who's already there? Our students. For they have been called for such a time as this. This is the hour that they've been called upon. But church, they need us. They need a generation that's gone before them. They need a generation that has the baton of faith in their hand. They need a generation that has been faithful with it. They need a generation who's willing to go and hand them the baton and entrust them with it. They need a generation that's willing to instill with them sound words so that way they can follow the pattern of sound words that have been entrusted to them. We can't do it alone. We can't do it by ourselves. We need the generation before us to be with us, to hand off the baton. Further together. We will go further together. If you were to take one runner and have him run one mile, the fastest mile runner in all of history, he would never, ever finish as fast as four individual trained athletes. Okay, we're not going to say anyone, but trained athletes who each run one leg of that race. 
because we will go further together. Not further alone. Not further, you guys take care of it, I'll catch up later. But further together. So how can we move further together? Invest. We need to invest in this generation, church. We need to invest in this generation. We need to invest with our resources. We need to invest with, with what we have been given. We, all this past month we've been talking about in Catalyst. What do I have to give? Church, we need to give what has been given to us. We've learned how what we have been given is not for ourselves, but to serve others. Church, we need to give what God has entrusted us to this generation. We need to give our finances. We need to give our time. We need to give our influence. We need to give all that God has blessed us with our knowledge to this generation, our energy. Church, right now, across on the other side of this building, we have students from nursery all the way through 6th grade. In this room, we have students from 7th through 12th grade. Church, they need you to invest in them. They need you to be willing to give them your time, to be willing to give you them their, your effort, to be willing to sacrifice for them because they need to know that this generation is willing to stand with them because we go further together. We need to influence We need to influence this generation. Just as Esther was an orphan girl, church, we're we're living in a world where we have an orphaned generation rising up. You need to be present in their lives. How could Timothy follow the pattern of sound words if Paul wasn't there to share it to him? Timothy had to hear it. In order for Timothy to hear it, Paul had to be present in his life. Church, if we're going to have a generation that's going to hold on to the sound words, they need to have someone who's willing to be present in their lives to give it to them. Church, if we're just going to expect a couple people to do it, we're going to mess it up. We're going to botch it. We're going to drop it. We're going to miss the exchange zone. Church, we need to get involved. We need to be influential people in our students' lives. We live in a world where they're pulling them this way and that way, to and fro. But church, we need to share with them the rock and the foundation, the everlasting book, the hope of the world. You need to be involved. You got to be involved. I don't know about you, but if a stranger came up to me and started telling me what I need and what I don't need to hear, and I never met them a day in in my life, I'm going to just brush them off and say, whatever. Do you, right? Church, this generation is only going to receive it if we establish credibility, if we establish relationships, and that means we have to be involved in their life. We have a generation that's looking for authenticity. We have a generation that's looking for relationships, that's looking for for people who will be real with them. No longer is integrity just given out, but it has to be earned. And how many know you can spend a lifetime earning integrity and in a moment lose it? Church, we need to be involved and we need to be an example. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Paul said in church. That's what we need to be. We need to model an authentic life after Christ. If you're not going to model authentic life after Christ, don't worry about it. 
You're going to do more harm than good. I believe that a lot of the pains and, and the things that we're dealing with is because we have too many people who've been trying to be involved in students' lives but aren't living the life that they are teaching. They aren't living the life that they are talking about. Church, if we're going to be involved, we need to model a life after Christ. Follow me as I follow him. You need to challenge them. You need to equip them. You need to call them out, but you can't do it for them. I can't go into these schools and and share with their classmates every day. I can't walk the halls of the schools. I can't go and sit in the cafeteria. But you know who can? They can, and they are in there. So church, we need to challenge them. Generation, this younger generation, I'm challenging you to stand up in your schools, to be a light in your homes. I'm calling you out. If you're going to say you go to church, you're going to say you go to youth group. If you're going to say you're a follower of Christ, then live that life. And you better believe I'm going to be with you every step of the way. If you need something, I'm going to help you. If you need help, I'm with you because I'm going to equip you. But you have to do it. If we invest in a generation, if we influence a generation, we're going to impact a generation for Christ. We're going to reach a home. We're going to reach a neighborhood. We're going to reach a community. We're going to reach a school. We're going to reach a state. We're going to reach a country. We're going to reach a world. We're going to reach a generation for Christ, church. Can I say that again? That if we invest and we influence, we're going to reach a generation for Christ. I'm a product of someone who's entrusted me with the baton. I'm a product of somebody willing to trust me with sound words, to take hold of the baton. I'm a product of a youth pastor who's willing to invite me in his office and share with me biblical truths. I'm a product of a church that was willing to stand behind me as I followed the call that God has placed on my life. I'm a product of a church that believes that God is calling a generation to be used by him. I'm here only because someone went before me. I'm here because I'm standing on someone else's shoulders. Church, you're only where you're at because you're standing on someone else's shoulders. And church, we have a generation that needs to stand up on your shoulders as well. Invest. I think there are people here who are called to be involved with our children's ministries, to be involved in our nursery. Maybe you've been hesitant. Maybe you're saying it's not for me. I challenge you to. There's people here who are called to invest in our students. What a critical day and age we live in, and they need godly men and women to invest in them, to influence them. And today I close with this. And as Pastor mentioned last week, we're going to take a special offering. And this offering doesn't go to a person. It doesn't go to an event. It, doesn't, it goes to our students. And so I'm going to ask if our ushers could come. And as they get ready to receive this, I want to go through this real quick. The New Jersey District 
New Jersey Youth, or the New Jersey District Council, we have established an initiative called Further Together. And this is what it is, is that we're challenging every single person, every single child, everything, every single student, every single adult, every mom, every dad, every brother, every sister, every grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, cousin, you name it, you're included. To practically invest financially to our students because our students have the opportunity to do various things, including fine arts, summer camp, going to youth conventions, serving on...